you would please turn your Bibles to Second Peter, begin a series as um, Brian mentioned last week on the book of Second Peter. Hopefully, you take a, a month or so of time to give Brian a break, and then we'll get back into the, the confession. But looking at this book, um, I've entitled the message "Divine Power, Divine Nature, Sure Calling." Divine power, divine nature, and sure calling. And before we look at uh, our text here in Second Peter, let's look back just briefly at what God uh, taught us by His Spirit in First Peter. And if you want to just look back over a page, oops, look back over a page to First uh, Peter chapter five. We'll just take a peek at that and look at a couple things before we get into our text in First Peter chapter one. Looking back, chapter 5, Peter exhorted us um, all to have a strong confidence in God. We may have a strong confidence in our own abilities in certain areas, but above all things, we as God's people need to have a strong confidence in God. We need to cast all our cares upon him. Uh, But this doesn't mean that we should be lazy, obviously. It's not a case where we sit back and say, okay, God, you do it all. We don't need to do anything. No, we we don't be lazy or careless, but we want to resist Satan by the grace and power of God, but also we need to have that attitude that we need to resist him. We don't just kind of give in and say, oh, well, i got to do what he's tempting me to do. In fact, as Peter points out, Satan is a ferocious foe. He is, no doubt at all. He seeks to tear us from our relationship with God. He seeks to damage the church of God and discourage us. So we must resist him. And as the text there in the latter part of 1 Peter chapter 5 says, we must remain steadfast in our faith, not wavering, not up and down, but steadfast, trusting God, knowing that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, from 1 John 4, 4. And we always need to remember, beloved, that Satan is indeed a defeated foe. He was defeated by our Savior at the cross, at the empty tomb, yet he will not give up the battle until he is locked forever in that lake of fire. We need to keep that perspective in mind uh, with all those who reject God. But we must put our gospel armor on. We need to put on that armor of God to resist Satan's devices and daily fight the good fight against him until we are safe in the arms of our Lord on the other side of the river. So we can do this because, as Peter points out there in that text in 1 Peter chapter 5, this beautiful benediction in verses 10 and 11. Let's read those two verses, 1 Peter 5, 10, <coughs> excuse me, and 11. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He is the God of all grace. The God of all grace is perfecting, he's establishing, he's strengthening, he's settling us. He who called us in Christ Jesus, though he allows us to suffer for a season, as Peter mentions here, will not allow us to be overcome by our enemy at last. Those called by God are chosen by him to be holy vessels that we might be filled with his grace to live for his glory, as Peter says here. As he states in verse 10, we are called to his eternal glory. That's important we keep that in mind. We are caught up, of course, in the temporalness of our life, our daily activities, the things around us day by day, year by year. But we need to think eternally. That's a precious hope that we have that in spite of all that goes on here on life, in our life, we have the hope of eternal life, of that eternal glory. 
Um, and that's something that we can be comforted in. In fact, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So keep an eternal perspective in mind as you go through your life. Certainly you have to deal with daily challenges and daily blessings too. But look beyond that day-to-day uh, challenge and look to the eternal hope that is yours in Christ. May that be a comfort to you and encouragement to you as you go through your day. Peter closes this first epistle with the assurance that the message of the gospel that he has preached to them was indeed the true grace of God. See that in in verse 12. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. We have no other gospel but that of the justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Truly the peace of God that passes all understanding is a secure possession that we have in Christ Jesus. So let's flip over to uh, first Peter, I'm second Peter, I'm sorry, second Peter chapter one. And let's read the first 11 verses and then we'll break it down little by little in some sections. But let's read these first 11 verses and kind of get the whole context here as we start out this book of second Peter. Simon Peter a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also, for this very reason, give all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's kind of break things down here. We'll look at the first portion of this text, uh, and we'll call this Greetings and Precious Promises. Greetings and Precious Promises. As with 1 Peter, the first chapter of 2 Peter is primarily concerned about an exhortation for believers to grow spiritually. That's what he's aiming at here. We also see in the weeks ahead, chapter 2 deals with the opposing of false teachers, and then chapter 3 with the certainty of Christ's return, and the final day of judgment. So let's read again the first four verses as we look at these greetings, the greeting of Peter, and the precious promises that he alludes to. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And as I read these first four verses, look at how often he's referring to the glory of God and the mercy of God, the grace of God, the power of God. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, 
as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given which has been given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. <clears throat> Much is made uh, by some commentators over the different styles of writing between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Also, the fact that it, he begins in 1 Peter by identifying himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And as you can see here in our text, he refers to himself as Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. How do we account for these differences? That's rather minor, but there are some others in style here. Well, as we mentioned before, it was not unusual, I think, uh, in past studies of Scripture for one of the apostles, particularly someone like Peter, um, not a trained uh, writer, I guess you might say, or theologian, for them, for them to use a secretary or what is known as an amanuensis. So it's quite possible. In fact, we know from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, that Silas or Silvanus probably assisted Peter in writing the first epistle. Okay? He might have been the Peter dictated to him and, and uh, Silvanus or Silas wrote it down. He was a secretary for Peter. So it's presumed that either Peter himself wrote 2 Peter or he used another secretary whose style was perhaps not as polished as Silas. But obviously the Holy Spirit inspired Peter. Peter either dictated it or wrote it down himself. So that's why you see a little different in, in, uh, in the styles of these particular, especially the Greek between First and Second Peter, probably because he used someone else to do the writing for him. We note, though, in this epistle that Peter does not identify his readers by where they reside, for instance, Asia Minor. But instead, he, he identifies them by the spiritual life they share in common with the apostle. It says, those who have obtained like precious faith by, with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The faith that we have is not, is the faith that they have here is not native to them. It's not something that they uh, obtained or they, they have obtained, I guess, in the sense they've obtained it not by themselves. They didn't go out and buy it somewhere or negotiate with it, but they have received it. Literally in the Greek here, the words mean to determine by lot. In other words, God has chosen, by not by merit, but according to his own unmerited favor or grace, to give them this faith. Ephesians 1.4 tells us he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, we know. This precious faith is a gift from God, as Ephesians 2.8 and 9 tells us. And it is based upon the righteousness, as it says in our take, based upon the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not on our righteousness. It's based on his righteousness. These are not arbitrary words here chosen by Peter, but they have a specific meaning. The first words here, where he says, like precious, in the Greek, mean, usually designate equally honorable or of equal rank. And they're used to designate or regard nobility. As Gordon Clark stated in his commentary, the contrast between nobility and slavery is striking and can hardly have been unintentional here. Peter is saying these fellow saints are noble, and they're noble in the sense that they, they share God's nature, not his being, but they share his nature. They're chosen by God to receive the righteousness of Christ and become a joint heir with Christ, as we're told in Romans 8:17. Truly, our faith is indeed a precious one. So Peter's trying to identify it as very precious, very important, very significant. Next, we know that Peter identifies Christ as both God and Savior, which is the correct reading of the Greek here. 
First of all, as I said a moment ago, our like precious faith is based upon his righteousness, not ours. And that's very, very important. Titus 3, 5 tells us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And you, know, you can see Philippians 3, 9 with the same kind of thought there. Secondly, we notice that Peter here emphasizes the divinity of Christ by referring to him as God and Savior. And that echoes the words, of course, of Thomas back in John 20, 28, when he said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Paul also reminds us in Colossians 2, 9, for in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So that's the key. That's really key to our salvation. For only the Son of God could pay for our sins, and only his righteousness can clothe us and make us acceptable in the presence of God the Father. You know, it's interesting to note that in 1 Peter, the word Savior doesn't occur. We don't see that word at all in 1 Peter. But here in 2 Peter, it occurs five times. And in fact, except for this first instance, it appears as part of the descriptive title, Lord and Savior. As Simon Kistemacher states in his commentary, because Jesus is God and Lord, he is able to set us free from sin, to make us righteous, and to restore us completely. Therefore, in response, we joyfully and thankfully sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior, right? He's both Lord and Savior. He's both God and Savior. Peter next offers a prayer there in verse 2, as you see in our text, with the phrase, grace and peace, common phrase used in most of the epistles by the apostles, either at the beginning or end. He's blessing uh, or greeting or blessing that's used. In Peter's two epistles, he uses the verb plethuno, plethuno, which literally means to be multiplied. So Peter is praying that God will send us ever-increasing supplies of grace and peace, not just a, that, that point in time, yeah, grace and peace to you, you know, okay, that's it. No, he's saying he's multiplying. He wants God to multiply that grace and peace to us. So it's a continual supply of grace and peace. He's praying God's going to bless us on an ongoing basis. As one commentator put it, grace and peace are like two sides of the same coin. Peace, the peace of God that passes all understanding, as we're told in Philippians 4.7, flows from the grace, which is really kind of an umbrella, a word for mercy and love and pardon that flows to us from God. This grace and peace is multiplied as we grow in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this is one of the main themes here of this epistle, as I mentioned, uh, as we shall see, that the knowledge, that, the idea of the knowledge of God. Throughout it, Peter is going to be urging his readers and us to increase that knowledge of Christ. Of course, this is not just head knowledge, but that of the heart, that of a relationship with Christ by faith, a, a spiritual knowledge. Now, Peter moves on, almost abruptly, really, in our text here, in the Greek text, from his greeting and his salutation to the foundation of life, of our life of faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. The source of it all is God's divine power, notice from our text. It's not something we do, something that we manufacture in any way, that any uh, human being, deacon, elder, bishop, archbishop, dispose upon us. No, it's given to us by God. It's all about God's divine power. In fact, as Griffin Thomas put it in his commentary, this is the adequate and permanent assurance to the believer of all provision for his life, that it is given to us by divine power. 
Christ's power is the fundamental uh, or fundamental fountainhead from which we draw all that we need to live and to pursue godliness. It's his power that enables us to do that. First, it's by Christ's power that we have life, eternal life. As we know in John 17, 2, as you have given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. That eternal life is given to us by God. He never earned, never built up in some way because of things that we do. It's given to us. So we need to keep that perspective in mind as we look at this text, the importance of God's divine power that's over all, of course, of salvation, over all the world and all things, and that what we have is what he has given us. Always thinking in terms of not what we have manufactured, but always thinking in terms of what he has given. By his divine power, he keeps us, he assures us that we will persevere to the end because he's in control. He's over all things. Excuse me. Again, not just a head knowledge, but a spiritual knowledge here. Second, the principle of life that we now have should be expressed in a life of godly obedience to the one who has given us this eternal life. As we obey God's will in our lives, we practice godliness and confirm the existence of our eternal life that he has given to us. We note again the phrase, through the knowledge here. The Greek word, is, as you may be familiar with, is epignosis, and it means the complete or full knowledge, in this case, of God's will. Colossians 1.9, for this reason we also, Paul speaking here, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That should be our desire, and that is what Paul's prayer is and what even Peter is alluding to here as well, that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will. As we study the scriptures, we might see more and more what God would have us to do, what his principles are, what his precepts are, what his doctrines are. As Brian's been teaching us through the, the London Confession, the doctrines that are there in the word, that's what that confession does. It brings out of the word the doctrines by which we should live. And we should seek to grow in that knowledge, not just kind of have a token knowledge that sort of, oh yeah, I remember that. No, that affects our lives. It causes us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Savior in all things. For this reason, we heard of it, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So after looking at several commentaries, by the way, on that verse, it would appear the most accurate translation from the Greek of the latter part of verse 3 here in our text would be by his own glory and might or power, by his own glory and power. God has called us by his own glory and might to the newness of life. It's not our knowledge of these facts. They say, oh yeah, I I recognize that. I I see that's true from the scripture. But it's an intimate knowledge of him, a saving knowledge, a saving knowledge that enables us to live for him. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we'll look at just a couple verses there. 1 Corinthians 2 and verses 1 and 2, first part of of that chapter. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul desired to know nothing else about them except, most importantly, Jesus Christ, that they believed in Christ and him crucified. They knew who Christ was. They believed on him. They knew that he came to die for their sins. That's what he wanted them to know. He didn't want them to be 
He didn't come trying to inspire them with his excellent oratory or anything like that, but he wanted to declare to him, to them, the testimony of God that Christ alone is our means of salvation. And that should be, obviously, the key thought that we have as we go forward in our daily life, that we are in Christ, that we are saved because of him. <coughs> Excuse me. If you do not know Christ and him crucified as your personal Savior, then all the knowledge in the world is not going to help you. You can be the most intelligent knowledgeable person in the whole world. If you know not Christ and him crucified, your knowledge will not help you on the day of, of, of judgment. So how do we come to have this knowledge of him and thus the means of living a life of godliness? Well, he says here in our text, through the exceeding great and precious promises of God. God has not only given us these great and precious promises, but he has fulfilled them in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by the fulfillment of these promises that God is true to his word, by the fulfillment of the promises, via his great redemptive plan, that we share in God's nature. And notice I said we share in his nature, not in his being. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God that we might share in God's holiness. Calvin sums up this, God's purpose here in making us share his nature this way. He says, let us then mark that the end of the gospel is to render us eventually conformable to God and, if we may say so, to edify us, to build us up. That's the purpose of the gospel, is to make us conformable to God, to be share in his nature of holiness. Peter gives the purpose of God's promises that we might partake of his nature in contrast to what he has delivered us from. They're at the end of verse 4. The end of verse 4 is that he is, we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So God gives us that blessing that we might be partakers of his nature to escape from the life of flesh that we lived before he brought us to himself in Christ. <clears throat> and Paul echoes those words in 2 Corinthians 17.1 regarding the appropriate conduct of those who have laid hold of the promises of God. He says, therefore, having these promises, same promises Peter's referring to, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So let's move on now in our text to the next section, I guess you'll call it, verses 5 through 9. We'll look at the, what Peter deals with as a progressive pursuit of godliness. He's established how we're in Christ, what he has called us to, the promises of God that are ours in Christ. Now he, he speaks to us as far as how we should live. As, as a result of that, if we know that, we know the promises of God, we know that we're in Christ, we know the hope that we have in him, and that we can defeat Satan as a result of him. Now, what are we supposed to do? What, are, what is the, the life we should be living? So he now gives us this broad range of qualities, which, if faithfully pursued, he says, will reflect how a believer ought to live. In other words, someone who claimed God's promises and has escaped the corruption of this fallen nature via the grace and mercy of God. This is how we should live. Let's read verses 5 through 9. But also, for this very reason, he's re referring back to those promises, he's referring back to God's divine power, because of this very reason, giving all diligence, that's an important word in this text, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly love, and to brotherly love, and to brotherly kindness love. For these things are yours and abound. You will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. <clears throat> so, 
These are indeed qualities that a Christian should, yes, must have if we're going to lead a life, of spirit, a spiritually productive life for the glory of God. Peter begins with the word, for this very reason. Okay, for this very reason, which alludes to God's work and redeem us, as I said. And now he stresses our part in working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2.12. Note that this will not be a casual exercise. He's not saying, well, you know, take your time. You can do this, you know, when you think about it. No, he's, he's putting words in here which talks about it doing it importantly. He says, if we would live a life that honors God, we must give all diligence. Give all diligence. That implies being fairly active and participating in this life. In fact, as John MacArthur puts it, he says, make a maximum effort. Make a maximum effort. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. You might want to see Hebrews 6.11 and Hebrews 12.15 with the same thought, that idea of diligence, of, of working hard, of not just standing back or, or being lazy or half-hearted, but being um, purposeful and driving yourself, uh, as, as um, John MacArthur said, making a maximum effort to live out this life of obedience to God. He gives us a list of seven qualities here. And we are to add them to our faith, <clears throat> not add them to our faith in the sense that they, they um they, show, they prove our salvation from the sense of, or they make our salvation, I guess I should say the term. The idea here in the Greek is with the verb is to add, is that the Christian will contribute generously to the working out of what God has worked in him. Faith is the anchor. It is the root of all these virtues or qualities that Peter mentions. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of them that, what? diligently seek him. Okay, so we have our part of being diligent, but God is the one who gives us the faith to believe and who preserves us. But we have a working out, a diligence we are to put forth. As Simon Kistemacher said in his commentary, faith is the believer's subjective trust in his Lord and Savior and therefore is the basis of his spiritual life. In reality, these other virtues are mere religious window dressing if we don't have faith in Christ. You can, you can do all these things. You can be uh, very diligent, you can, or you can, you can have knowledge, you can have self-control and persevere and be brotherly kindness, but those things will not save you. But they are a reflection of the fact you are saved, the reflection of the fact that God's power is working in you. So just to do those things does not guarantee your salvation, but they are a reflection of the fact that you are saved, that God has justified you through faith in Christ. <clears throat> So let's look at these virtues one by one. The first quality that we see here, or virtue, I guess is kind of a redundant term, coincidentally is virtue, or more accurately, really in the Greek, it means manly energy or courage. Okay? It's, it's a courage. It's a definite work here, not a kind of a pass, passive uh, work, but it's a definite work of manly energy or courage. As John MacArthur points out, in classical Greek, the word means the God-given ability to perform heroic acts, okay? to, to go out and do something just for the glory of God, do something heroic. Goodness, which is another translation, by the way, of this word, is one of God's characteristics, and therefore it ought to be reflected in our life as a child of God. So you can look at it as goodness in doing a good deed, something of, of very powerful nature, someone who is uh, definitively serving God in a, in a specific way. We need a holy boldness, in other words, in pursuing this moral goodness, the good deeds for the glory of God. 
Now, the second virtue that we hear are to add to our faith is knowledge. And as I mentioned before, this gaining of knowledge seems to be a key theme here in this epistle, as we saw in verses 2 and 3. This knowledge, of course, is not just any knowledge, but a true understanding of God and his word. And, of course, how do we get that true understanding of God and his word? We read it. We study it. We meditate on it. We apply it to our life. We make it a part of our life. Okay, and that's the important thing. It's one thing to know the word in the sense of, oh, yeah, the word's there, and I can read it, and I can see some great thoughts there. We need to know it in our hearts and minds. We need to meditate upon it. Like the catechism questions that are put in our uh, bulletins, we are to memorize and keep it there, the principles in that word, to guide our thoughts, our desires, our actions. That's the important thing. Ephesians 5.17, Wherefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of God is. How do you understand something? You study it, you meditate on it, you think about it, you chew on it, so to speak, you digest it uh, spiritually, mentally. Knowledge and faith, as one commentator put it, knowledge and faith go hand in hand, for faith is strengthened through knowledge, and the increase of knowledge is rooted in trust. Let me read that again. Knowledge and faith go hand in hand, for faith is strengthened through knowledge, and the increase of knowledge is rooted in trust. In other words, the more we know of God via the study of his word, the more we learn to admire and trust him, the more wisely we will live our life. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, you're probably familiar verses to you, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge. Uh, Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Proverbs 15, 33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. Okay, those three verses, Proverbs 1, 7, 9, 10, and 15, 33, the fear of the Lord leads to living a life of knowledge and obedience to him. Okay, that's something we need to keep in mind. Now, the third virtue that Peter lists here for a goal, as well as an offshoot of our faith, is self-control, or some translation have temperance. In Peter's time, the word particularly referred to sports, and thus it speaks of athletes who were self-restrained and self-disciplined. In fact, turn back with me to uh, Paul's familiar text on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we'll look at verses, uh, let's see here, 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, just at the end of that chapter 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So self-control, disciplining yourself. Discipline yourself in the word, in the principles of God's word, so that you might run the race, the spiritual race, and overcome the stumbling blocks along the way by that same grace. So a Christian must exercise self-control uh, in all things, whether it be eating, drinking, anger, sexual activity, anything. We overcome this, the weakness of our flesh by walking and living in, truth, in the truth of God's word, exercising self-control, self-discipline through the word of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. We note also that the apostles don't always give us specific examples. Paul did there, but 
they don't always give us specific examples of what they mean when they list these virtues. Sometimes they do. Everyone is not alike, and whereas some believers have to, never have to struggle with something, for instance, like drunkenness, never even bothers you at all, there are other people who, because of past experiences before they came to Christ, have those kind of long-time struggles over it. Overall, though, as a believer, we can keep our self-control strong in any area, in any area, by having a complete reliance upon the grace of God. And like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, know that God's strength is made perfect in what? In our weakness. As we recognize our weakness, we look to God for strength. Okay? We look to God in the sense of saying, we can't do this on our own and must depend upon the power and grace of God. And that's important that in many situations, we, we want to look to ourselves, our experiences, our you know, things that we've done or the, perhaps advice we've gotten from others. But it's very important that in those times, we look to God. We look to him first. We look to him for wisdom. He is, again, the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So as believers, certainly we, we need to labor. We need to, to uh, build ourselves up in the faith by studying his word. But above all, when we're faced with a crisis or priority, rather than turning within ourselves, we need to look to God. We need to look to him for that divine power, as Peter's talking about here, to enable us to overcome that weakness, that fault, or that temptation that's come upon us in these circumstances that we face on a daily basis. <clears throat> um, fourthly here, Peter tells us to add patience to our faith, or as some translations have it, perseverance. Uh, this one is well-placed in following self-control, for it only takes, what, a momentary slip to end up in a failure or a moral defeat. So patience or perseverance is very important. Thayer, in his Greek dictionary, defines the word as the characteristics of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. It is a word that, as you probably know, is used repeatedly throughout the New Testament and Old Testament as well. I can give you a number of references to look up, and then I'll read one to you. You might want to jot these down as the importance of patience or perseverance. Psalm 37, verse 7. Psalm 37, 7. Luke 21, 19. Luke 21, 19. Romans 8, 25. It's 8, 25. Colossians 1, 11. Colossians 1, 11. Hebrews 6, 12. Hebrews 6, 12. And this one from Hebrews 10, 36. For you have need of patience that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Okay, we need patience. Sometimes we're in the midst of doing things as we desire to do for the glory of God, and we think, you know, when is this going to end? When is this trial going to end? We, we patiently endure it, knowing that ultimately God will fulfill that promise he has made to us in Christ. We may not see it here immediately, but we can know that we have that eternal promise in Christ to sustain us through all trials. Uh, the fifth uh, thing he makes in his list here is we are exhorted to add to our faith godliness. Now, this might sound similar to goodness. However, as we explained earlier, whereas goodness in the original Greek spoke more of heroic deeds, godliness is to be fully conscious of God in whatever we do and to live reverently, faithfully, and obediently towards God. R.C. Sproul, as you may know, likes to use that, like to use that motto of John Calvin, who determined by God's grace to always live quorum Deo, which means in the presence of God. You live as though you're in God's presence. As always, he's right there beside you. The presence of God should help us to see what we're doing as whether it's pleasing to him or pleasing to ourselves. And think about that. It's hard perhaps to, for us to imagine, but 
in the time of Christ when he was here. The disciples walking with Christ. Imagine as they've watched his life, his holiness, his perfect righteousness in all things, walking with him, being in his presence, holding a conversation. You think they would be prone to tell dirty jokes or you know, make crude comments? No, they'd probably be restrained, wouldn't they? They'd be thinking, oops, I can't do that. I'm with, I'm with Christ. I'm with the Son of God. So we need to have that sense that we're always in God's presence. He's always looking at us. He's always listening to us. He's aware of what we're thinking, doing, what we're planning. Think in terms of God always being in, that, in your presence with you. We have a verse there uh, in our little plaque in our dining room that speaks roughly saying that God, Christ is the head of this home. Every conversation he listens to, he's here at all times. He hears what you're saying. So in other words, be careful what your conversations are because he is there. He hears what you're saying. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what your designs are, what your purposes are. So live quorum Deo in the presence of God as though he is there with you all the time because he is. Keep that in mind, and that will help restrain you from sin. Six, uh, Peter tells us in verse seven, to add to our faith brotherly kindness. Now, this is from the Greek word Philadelphia, and it speaks of a genuine love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans 12, 10, 11, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Finally, Peter concludes his list there in verse 7 with this admonition to add to our faith love. Now, we may think that this is kind of redundant since he just talked about the other exhortation of brotherly kindness, but this love, this love is for those outside the church. And indeed, really those last two, brotherly kindness and love, are a fulfillment of the second great commandment, which is what? To love our neighbor as ourselves, right? That's what the second great commandment is. So we are to have brotherly kindness towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are to have love for the lost around us as well. Indeed, Jesus reminds us of that in Matthew 5, 44. We are to what? Love our enemies. And Paul, in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, says, Owe to no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves, he who loves another has fulfilled the law of God. Also, 1 John 4, verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Are we abiding in love? Is God's love abiding in us? And are we manifesting that love? The question is, what are we doing with all these virtues? What impact are they having on our life? So I would recommend you read over these virtues there in verses uh, 5 through 9 and consider Are these things manifesting in my life at all, anywhere? Are any of them there in my life? Excuse me. As Peter points out in verse 9, if these things are not a part of your life, then you're in trouble. But if they are a part of your life, but abounding, then you will not be unproductive in both growing in and displaying your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The results of such a life are that we shall glorify God and be a blessing to others. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, And may the Lord make you increased and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. So we want to increase in love to one another and to all. We want to manifest these qualities, because if we do, then we we give confidence to ourselves, and we show to those around us that we are truly in Christ, that he has made that impact on our life. He has redeemed us. He has made us a new creature, 
a new creature that lives for God and not for ourselves. And as I said, that contrast there in verse 9 is that if you as a believer, now he's talking about believers here. Some people look at this text and say he's talking about people who have lost their salvation. That's not what he's saying. He says, if you as a believer are lacking in these qualities, you're not only unfruitful, but you are spiritually blind to the truth. Now, we may be able to grasp, as, an, as a believer, a weak believer, I guess you might say, we might be able to grasp earthly principles, but if we can't see heavenly ones that are far away through the word here, in particular, or forgetful of our justification and cleansing in the blood of Christ, then we're going to live like the world. Nobody's going to be able to tell the difference between us and the world. We're going to be a, a rebuke, really, to the name of Christ. But those who are, are not willing to diligently, as Peter says here, add these virtues to the faith, soon become that indistinguishable person that nobody knows whether you're a believer or not. They don't know as they react with you on a daily basis. So need to recall these words of Paul as he responds to those who mock at grace in the believer's heart. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? If we return to our old ways, we testify, first of all, that we are not really honoring Christ, but we also begin to question, people begin to question, are you really a Christian? Okay, It's not that, he's, Peter's not saying here that if you don't do these things perfectly, you're not a Christian. But he's saying if you're not doing them, then you should be able to question, am I a believer? Is, is God really done a work in me? Because I don't seem to be able to do any of these things, or I'm not even acting out these things, even on a regular basis. Okay, so that's important that we look at these virtues as not just optional. Oh, it doesn't matter. But no, this is what it should be if we're truly living for Christ. This is re what reflects to the world that we are his children. So it's important that we keep that in mind. <clears throat> Moving on now to the end of our, our section here, we're looking at verses 10 and 11. We'll, we'll call this continued diligence, continued diligence which leads to abundant assurance. Continued diligence which leads to abundant assurance. Let's not be among those who neglect these virtues, but those that rather diligently pursue them. Notice that word, it's repeated here almost three times, diligence. The importance of persevering, of not half-heartedly living for God but being diligent. Verses 10 and 11, let's read those together. Therefore, brethren, once again, he's coming to conclusion. Every time he says, therefore, we need to pay attention. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent, there's that word again, to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord, and there it is again, and Savior, Jesus Christ. Powerful words. In this, we have the conclusion of Peter's exhortation about promises and virtues. And I'll not spend a lot of time on this, but just important that we have a certainty regarding our salvation. These virtues help us to have a certainty. We spend a lot of time looking at these things and studying them. We should seek to live them out. They help as we live them out by the grace and power of God to prove to our to our own hearts, that we are truly in Christ. If I am indifferent to these things, well, then that's a sign that you maybe need to check to make sure you truly are in him. Not only is it the duty of Christians to diligently pursue these godly virtues, that they might grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ, but it is their duty to make their election sure. It helps us to give an assurance of our salvation. Note the use, that again, of diligence, or in this, some translations, all the more eager, I think, is one translation, to emphasize the importance of the task and perseverance in attending to it. Peter's saying, 
We must do this without delay. We don't put it off and say, well, I'll get to that later on in life. Right now I'm busy raising my family. I've got a job to do. I have things I want to accomplish. No, we do it now. We make it a part of our, our, our life now. Whereas 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 emphasizes God's part in electing us and calling us, this verse, verse 10, emphasizes man's responsibility in regard to salvation. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. As Simon Kistemacher Kostmacher put it, Peter wants readers to realize that God calls them in their lifetime, but that they must exert themselves diligently in ascertaining and appropriating their calling and election. In essence, Peter is saying that those who diligently pursue these spiritual qualities listed in verses 5 through 7 demonstrate to themselves the grace of God in them and give assurance that they were chosen by God and called to salvation. And before we, we close up here in just a minute, let's turn to 1 John, 1 John chapter 3 and verses 19 through 21. 1 John chapter 3, 19 through 21. <clears throat> in fact, let's back up to verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. Again, don't just be a, a Christian by, by word, you know, by to saying nice things and, and speaking good words, but by, by our very life, our very life should show that we are of the truth. And by this, verse 19, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And you really can't do that unless you're in Christ, can you? And verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. <clears throat> Excuse me. We note that Peter says here, if we do these things, we shall never fail or literally stumble. Our life here on earth is obviously no way perfect. Uh, we face challenges every day, even for the most godly of saints. But the stumbling spoken of here is in regard to the assurance of our salvation and its security. It's guaranteed by God, not us. Jude, verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to keep us from stumbling. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. There's that presence of his glory again, as Peter refers to. The idea here in verse 11 is by affirming our calling and election, our entrance into the kingdom of God, or more literally, our salvation, shall be made abundantly clear to us. Also, it speaks of the rich welcome we'll receive from God in the eternal kingdom if we diligently pursue these virtues in manifestation of the spiritual life he's given to us. As Peter will tell us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, in a couple weeks here when we get to that, we look forward, quote, according to his promise. Again, according to his promise for a new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. So underlying Peter's sense of urgency and diligence is his belief in the imminent return of Christ. He's thinking in terms of Christ's coming. Therefore, we should live so we would not be ashamed at his coming. Let's live with that in mind 
and let's be prepared. Let's be found diligently pursuing these qualities in our spiritual life that we might manifest to the world and give glory to God that we are his. Okay? Let's pray.